All right, good morning to you. This is Mike Smith. We've got a terrific Thursday morning show for you, including the latest on the COVID-19 pandemic. Officials yesterday announcing 19 new cases of the virus in British Columbia, including new outbreaks in long-term care facilities in the Valley. Officials called the care home and hospital outbreaks yesterday very troubling. Let's start with that right now. My guest is BC Health Minister Adrian Dix. I'm very pleased to welcome him back to the show. Minister, thank you for coming on. Hey, good morning, Mike. Good morning to you. Thanks for doing this. So the uh, the numbers yesterday, I guess the 19 number is a little higher than we've seen recently, but I guess the most troubling aspect of this is uh, more COVID in care homes. And the, the link to Mission Memorial Hospital, and I'm, I'm wondering what you can say about this, because it, it seems to me that what happened here was that there were some patients were transferred from the hospital to these long-term care homes, and then tested positive for COVID-19, and I know some family members are concerned about whether those patients should have been tested uh, before they transferred into long-term care. What can you tell tell us about that? Well, just that there, there was an outbreak. Uh, there's an outbreak at Mission Memorial. It's linked to the outbreaks uh, in Langley at Maple Hill, uh, the, the, uh, the uh, outbreak at the Tabor uh, care home, that um, health officials are working hard, as you would expect, to isolate these outbreaks. We have had a number of outbreaks where there's only been one case, but remember, one case is an outbreak. And so uh, actions being taken at all these uh, at all these centers. I think one of the things that we've done well in BC is respond, and our health officials have responded very quickly to outbreaks. That doesn't mean that there haven't been serious consequences. And you can, we know the names of the care homes. We know Lynn Valley Lodge. We know Harold Park, where COVID-19, which can have a devastating effect, has had a devastating effect. But I think we're just following the same public health practices, the contact tracing, the isolation, the infection control, that has been overall effective for us in BC. And we're just going to continue to do the work I know that family members under these circumstances are going to be upset. Uh, I'd be upset. You'd be upset, Mike. So I understand that. We just have to keep doing the work. And uh, this is a very challenging virus to deal with for health officials. And I think our health officials are doing a good job, but it continues to be a challenge. Let me let me play a clip here for you, Minister. That was on Global News last night. This is Diane Zess, and her uh, her Zeiss, I believe, is her name, and her father is a resident at the the Mission Hill Care Home in Langley. And here she is talking about the patient that was transferred from the hospital into the care home and her concerns there, Diane Zeiss. They had a patient come in from Mission Memorial Hospital on June 9th, um, and she tested positive for COVID-19 uh, Sunday night. My father called my mother Monday morning hysterically crying um, because he knew he was told there was COVID in the, in the care home. Okay, I'm wondering what you can say to her, Minister, and, and the other family members who wonder why there were patients from the hospital transferred into a care home without being tested first. I, I think I'd say that we investigate these cases, their health cases, uh, and that obviously an investigation of what has happened at Mission Memorial Hospital, where there had not been any outbreak uh, prior to this. Right. And uh, obviously, a very vigorous action is being taken at Maple Hill, which is the care home that's near Langley Memorial Hospital. A uh, very significant action is being taken there to uh, to protect residents. And uh, everybody is doing their best in very challenging circumstances. And I think uh, our healthcare workers are doing well. But COVID-19 is still in the community. If you look at the COVID-19 dashboard, all of our information is on there, which is on the BCCDC website. You'll see that especially in Fraser Health, in this part of the pandemic here in BC, we have relatively high rates compared to the other health authorities of community transmission. And uh, this is happening out there. And it reminds us that we have to engage in physical distancing. We have to stay home when we're sick because uh, COVID-19 remains a factor, particularly in Fraser Health, but everywhere in the province. I wonder what it means for the potential for people to visit loved ones in long-term care homes. This is something I know that people have been talking to you about for a long time. On on yesterday's show, I spoke to Isabel McKenzie, British Columbia's independent advocate for seniors, 
And she had some interesting things to say about long-term care home visits and, and her hope that people will be able to visit their loved ones soon. And let me play that for you, Minister. Here's Isabel McKenzie on yesterday's show. We've got to find a way to live with this virus, and we've got to find a way to have the confidence to allow these visits. It's not risk-free to continue with these visit restrictions either because it will have a deleterious effect on the health and well-being of the people living there, perhaps equal to or greater than COVID. What do you think about that? We got some, I would, I would describe them as heartbreaking calls on the open line yesterday from people who've been separated from loved ones and they're, and they're watching their loved ones deteriorate while they're separated from their families in these care homes. What can you say about that? I can say that uh, I've talked to many of them because I return my calls often. I don't return all the emails, but people have been emailing me and uh, talking to me about this really from the beginning of the pandemic. I can say that I understand. I understand personally these circumstances, not just as Minister of Health, but personally, that I agree with people that not having um, people visit you is, uh, is a real limitation on freedom in life. All of these things are true, and so we are working on ways to make this happen. But here's what's also true, uh, Mike, that uh, had we not put limitations on visits, we were talking about 30,000 people in publicly funded long-term care, more in total, right? And generally speaking, there's relatively free access, uh, as we all know, for visitors prior to COVID-19. If we had tens of thousands of people visiting our care homes, our COVID-19 situation, our care homes would have been much worse. So uh, Isabel is correct. Uh, it is a balance. It's trying to find a way to continue to function and to continue and to have a higher quality of life, which surely involves being with the one we love. Everyone would say that. Uh, well, ensuring that people are as safe as possible. And that's the balance that we're working on. And the situation in Fraser Health, our first set of questions shows how challenging that is, even without adding uh, the aspect of family visits. But we're working hard on it. No one has to tell me about it. I know about it, Mike. And so we're working on it and working on it hard. And I hear people, but we also have to do it safely because we can't have a situation. I mean, we've seen this. This isn't happening you know, the worst of this isn't happening on in France or Japan or South Africa or somewhere else in the world. We've seen what's happened in other jurisdictions in Canada, where thousands of people have died in long-term care. And that means they're shut down, too, but they're shut down and thousands of people have, um, have uh, passed away. Uh, we can't have that here. And we're doing everything we can to stop it. And the fact that it can happen, we don't need to look anywhere else in our own country to see that. One more question for you, Minister. When you take a look uh, south of the border in the United States and we see the ramp up of cases there, the border is still closed to non-essential traffic. Do you have concerns about what's happening to the south of us and your thoughts on that border being shut down? How long do you think it should be shut down? It looks like it could be a long time. Well, I, as you know, I was one of, the, one of the leading public advocates for ensuring that visitors not come to Canada from the United States right now. Yes. It's very disconcerting. Um, you know, look, and th- there's a tendency, you know, to look at the United States, especially in these days, day and age, and and try and feel um, a certain sense of, um, I don't know, that we're doing better in any event. But uh, I feel for them down there. I hope they get a handle on this. Washington and Oregon and California have engaged in some good public health policies, although they don't have public health care, which is a huge disadvantage for them. But, but I am very hopeful that they can get control of this in the United States, get better control. The fact is, California has seen its highest levels and a major increase over the last couple of weeks. Oregon has. Washington increased and then has stayed at a higher level. Nevada, Arizona, these are states with which we have very strong links. Yes. And all of these states, plus Alberta, plus Alaska, all of these states that surround us are uh, are having serious problems. And uh, that's why we've got to stay the course in BC. We've got to work together. We've got to keep, we've got to get the economy going while ensuring that COVID is under control because the alternative to that is bad for our economy, our social life, and of course, our health. Minister, thank you for taking the time today. Hey, anytime, Mike. Take care, eh? I, I appreciate it. That is Adrian Dix. Time to check in now with BC Liberal Leader Andrew Wilkinson. Thank you for coming on again. Hey, Mike. Yesterday, uh, BC Premier John Horgan announced an, a new survey, an online survey that he feels will be critical to getting the economy back up and running. I know you've got some concerns about it. Your thoughts? 
Well, we heard this announcement and said to ourselves, seriously? They've talked to 20,000 people in 1,500 meetings already. The federal government has put out $7,000 for every person in Canada over the last three months. We're 100 days into this crisis. They've got 28,000 people working for the provincial government on this, and they've come up with nothing. And they want to go out and have a survey now. And I think the really disturbing thing is this survey asks for your age, gender, and address. So we have to wonder, is this really for politics rather than for policy? So the point being, Mike, it's time to get British Columbians back to work. Are you you saying that, what, they're going to collect people's personal information and then turn it over to the NDP and send them vote NDP pamphlets or something? And what's your point there? Well, if they're collecting that kind of information, this should be done by BC Stats, which is an independent agency like Stats Canada, and all the information should be put on a database and made public. I mean, this is not a time for playing games. We have half a million people in this province who are unemployed. They are worried sick about the future. The CERB has been extended by two months, which has kept a bit of the pressure off the provincial government. But what's the plan? They've had four months to put together a plan, and we, as the people of British Columbia, deserve to know what it is. If there is no plan, that's even worse. But surely Premier Horgan can do better than say he's going to have a survey and find out what people think. People are worried sick about the future. Well, the plan is, they've got a plan, don't they? they got a plan called Restart BC. We're in phase two of the plan right now, and we're waiting to go into phase three. A lot of people are hoping phase three will be announced very soon, and it will include things like non-essential travel within British Columbia so people can go on holidays in BC. That's the plan. I mean, you've seen the well, plan. Well, that's the plan from public health. That is not any kind of a plan to get people back to work when people have been losing income for the last four months. There are tens of thousands of small businesses that have had, had zero income. We heard the Premier's Economic Recovery Task Force was put together with no representation from the tourism industry, which has suffered 130,000 job losses in the last four months. So we're all getting very concerned that there is no plan. As you say, there's a public health plan, well, hang on. and no, the, John the plan, Horgan's being a bit coy with that, too. The plan, the plan has been rolled out not only by uh, public health officials, but also by Horgan, by Finance Minister Carol James, and by WorkSafe BC. They put in protocols to get businesses up and running, for example, restaurants and bars going again. So that is the plan. I mean, it's not just a public health plan. It's a plan to reopen the economy. Yeah, but Mike, look at the restaurants downtown. They're empty. Look at the bus that I saw on Granville Street 20 minutes ago, the extended bus with one passenger on it at rush hour. There's a serious problem, even if we reopen, that people don't have any money to spend and they're worried and these businesses are going broke. So the public health aspect will be rolled out inevitably as the virus numbers go down. But the economic plan, we have seen nothing of. And now we're told there'll be a consultation process. People in British Columbia are worried about their job and worried about their future. If you work in the airlines, if you work in hospitality, if you work in tourism, your job may have ceased to exist. And so we need to know what the Premier's plan is after he's talked to 20,000 people already He's held 1,500 meetings. What's the plan? Or is there a plan at all? Okay, when I take a look at this survey that Horgan announced yesterday and some of the questions on the survey, I I detect a little politics there myself. So, for example, one of the questions is, is one of your priorities building more child care centers to get more parents into the workforce? I'm wondering if that's a, a clue that, the government is looking at an, an agenda that would include building more more uh, child care centers and, and pro- probably try to frame it as they would do a better job of, of doing that than you guys. Well, and I think you're hitting the nail on the head there. Let's talk about people getting back to work rather than the NDP's political agenda. If you want to do a survey, go out there and do it and make all the results public. But don't wait for a job plan to see what the survey has to say about new childcare spaces. What about the existing childcare spaces? Are they functioning? Can people go back to work at all? Is there a job to go back to? That's what people are worrying about now, not the NDP's question about some vague plan for the future. People are worried about what they will be doing for a job on Labor Day or on uh, Canada Day. 
People are very, very concerned. We hear that in the town hall meetings we hold all over the province, tens of thousands of people on these calls that we put together. They are very, very concerned that there is no plan from the provincial government. And this $1.5 billion that uh, the Premier is holding back, what's the plan for that? It needs to be get out there and deploy it right now so people have some kind of sense of hope and purpose and some expectation of getting back to work. We got one minute left here. I was speaking to Andrew Wilkinson, BC Liberal leader. Do you have any concerns about the the COVID nineteen infections announced yesterday at a couple of care homes in the valley, and and the and especially that it appeared to be be linked to a hospital? We're already hearing from some family members. Why weren't new care home uh, people coming into in, into a care home tested for COVID nineteen before they come into a care home? You're a medical doctor. Do you have any thoughts on that? I think we're seeing increasingly across British Columbia people saying, don't just tell me the results, tell me what the options are, tell me how it works. Why did this happen? Not just here's the result, just deal with it. Things like in care homes, why aren't there glass walls where people can go and see their loved ones before they fade away, before they lose contact with them completely? We do that in our constituency office where there's no contact with the staff, but there's a glass wall where you can go and say hello to people. Let's see the options. Let's see the rules. Let's find out what the criteria are rather than just telling us the results. Thank you for coming on today. Thanks, Mike. Let's talk a little federal politics. It was a wild day uh, yesterday. You had a conservative leadership debate last night. We had federal NDP leader Jugmeet Singh booted out of the House of Commons yesterday. Canada loses its bid for a seat on the UN Security uh, Council. Lots to talk about. Have a listen to this. Now, here's the uh, here's the Jugmeet Singh incident. Now, yesterday, uh, the NDP tried to move a motion in the House of Commons to recognize that there is systemic racism in the RCMP, and the motion required unanimous consent of the House. The Bloc Québécois voted against it, and Singh was certainly not happy about that. He called one Bloc MP a racist, and here's how it went down. The NDP unabashedly is treating the member of La Prairie as a racist person, and this is unacceptable in this House. It's true. I called him a racist. I would ask the member to apologize. I will not. I order you withdrawn from the House for the remainder of this sitting day. All right, all right. Jagmeet Singh removed from the, the Parliament yesterday. Let's check in with our panel now. Sarah McIntyre is back. She's a columnist and commentator, former press secretary for former Conservative Prime Minister Stephen Harper. Sarah, welcome back. Hi, good uh, morning. I guess it's good morning still in D.C. Good, good morning here, good afternoon to you. Okay. <laughs> yeah. Okay, she's back east. Maria Dobrinskaya also on the line, B.C. Director of the Broadbent Institute. Hi, Maria. Hi, good morning. Thanks, guys, to both of you. Sarah, let me go to you first. What do you think about uh, the Singh incident yesterday? Your thoughts? Well, I mean, I think this is uh, the motion itself is something that the RCMP should be looking a little bit more inwardly about their uh, performance, particularly at West and uh, in the East as of recent uh, weeks. But, you know, this is, you know, calling out racism and saying something about it is what, we, you know, you see racism, you got to say something about it. Um, and so I think, you know, Jagmeet Singh was living the words that he's preaching. So um, how the House responded and the Speaker responded, I, um, you know, I wasn't actually there. Do you, <laughs> but do you think it was, do you think it was, it was okay for him to call another MP a racist just because they didn't give unanimous consent to a motion? No, house? no, I don't. I don't think that that in and of itself constitutes racism. I, I think that, you know, people get talking about these issues and they get very heated. And um, is it constructive? No, I don't think so. OK, it got more emotional later. Let me play this for, here for you now. This is a part of a news conference with Jugmeet Singh, the NDP leader, later talking about this incident. Have a listen. I look back and I saw that MP not only say no, but make eye contact with me and just kind of brush his hand, dismiss it. And in that moment, I got angry. I'll be honest, I got angry. But I'm sad now. Because why can't we act? Why can't we do something to save people's lives? We can do something. And why would someone say no to that? All right, Jugmeet Singh uh, yesterday. Maria Dobrinskaya, what did you think of the whole thing? 
Well, I mean, again, I, I agree with Sarah that we're on one hand telling our kids, uh, you know, speak up when you see racist acts happen. And that's exactly what, what Jagmeet did. Um, I do think that that MP's actions uh, were racist. We heard from uh, Mr. Singh directly that there was a sort of dismissive wave as well. I I trust that uh, Jagmeet, as uh, the only racialized leader uh, of a federal party this country has seen, um, understands in a really direct and clear way uh, what a racist act is. But I also think in this moment, when we're examining um, sort of systemic or institutional racism, which is the nature of what the motion was about, that to not support that exploration, that examination, that statement of racism within the RCMP is not being anti-racist. And if you're not anti-racist, then you're essentially upholding these racist uh, structures that exist. So I think that there's a, it it was good that he stood up. I think there's a lot of Canadians that are are grateful uh, for that kind of leadership. And none of this would have had to happen at all if Justin Trudeau um, had introduced uh, similar legislation rather than just, you know, taking a knee and doing more symbolic action. Well, I'm, I'm wondering, though, if it's if it's racist to vote against a motion in the House of Commons uh, put forward by right. another party or whether that's just basic politics that goes on all the time in Ottawa. Like this is a very yeah. sweeping motion that the NDP brought forward here not only to review systemic racism in the RCMP, but also to review the RCMP in, uh, in budget uh, to, in, to uh, as a spending element to here to bl- increase non-police investments and non-violent intervention. Uh, it goes on and it's a very lengthy motion and it's very common for an opposition party to vote against uh, another party's motion like that. I'm not sure that's racist. I, I, I just wonder if that's just old-fashioned politics, Maria. Well, I mean, I think that it, I, again, I also wasn't there, so I can't speak yeah. to the moment, but I think if it was this one individual MP, if we saw... Uh, almost unanimous consent from other political parties. That would mean the willingness to proceed uh, with moving this this motion forward, um, which doesn't necessarily mean support of the motion itself. Um, So I think it's notable that there was one uh, abstention, that the majority of Liberal MPs, the majority of Conservative MPs, I I assume the majority of Bloc MPs, were all uh, in agreement. And so it wasn't like there was a contentious bill... um, you know, that wasn't recognized by anybody else other than this single MP. So, yes, absolutely, there's politics at play. But to also assume that um, that doesn't mean it's racist uh, ignores, I think, a great amount of this country's history and that there's been a lot of activity in the House of Commons that could okay. be interpreted as racist, whether or not we would name it as such um, in a historical context. Okay, Sarah McIntyre, your thoughts on the issue around police conduct, police brutality in, in, our, in our country, systemic racism. Is this a challenge for Trudeau, and where do you think this issue is going in Canada right now? Good question. Um, look, it is an issue in Canada, but like many things in Canada, there are different uh, severities and different regional variances. Um, you know, Bureau West, uh, you see what happened to the chief in, in Alberta there uh, for an apparent uh, expired sticker on his license plate. And then the SIU actually reviewing that video. I don't know if your viewers have seen that, but uh, and reviewed the video of these police officers who one's got his hands behind his back and the other one comes flying up and clocks him in the face yes. um, and saying that that doesn't warrant uh, an investigation. I mean, on the face of it, there's you know, no way that you could look at that and say there shouldn't be an investigation. So there's, there's deep problems uh, in the West, and, and part of that is because of the RCMP relationship uh, with uh, Aboriginals uh, uh, historically. Um, I mean, I, I don't know. I was just chatting with someone earlier. Uh, I, I did uh, look at Aboriginal sentencing provision on my master's thesis, but there was a case in 1970s, Dry Bones case, that if you were a native and you were intoxicated off reserve, you could be jailed. Jailed. Wow. Wow. Um, and so, you know, we haven't been, it hasn't been that long where we actually did have institutionalized and legalized uh, racism in this country. And I think it requires more than a knee. I think it, more, it requires more than a um, Uh, a symbolic motion. I think it requires some really tough conversations with some of our policing uh, agencies, particularly RCMP, and how they conduct themselves, um, you know, whether it's called systemic racism or the uh, the RCMP commissioners, the... 
her language, but uh, there is definitely this is a problem on his plate, and he's he's got to be able to show some leadership on this that requires more than taking a knee. Okay, my guests are Sarah McIntyre and Maria Dobrinsky. Let's talk about another issue, guys, and that is Canada now 0 for 2 in our continuing bid to win a seat on the United Nations Security Council. Now, this is something that the Trudeau government had made a high priority. We wanted that rotating seat on the UN Security Council. We lose out to Norway and Ireland. Uh, Maria, your thoughts? Yeah, well, I think the uh, the Trudeau government made the campaigning and posturing for the seat a high priority, but they didn't um, make the development of a coherent foreign policy and the actions that the government would have need to have undertaken uh, to be viewed seriously in an international uh, arena as a player warranting the seat. So I don't believe we deserve the seat um, for a variety of reasons. The UN has called Canada out on a variety of things from uh, the human rights and environmental violations of our mining companies uh, to, you know, the, 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 the amount of money right now that Norway is spending on foreign aid um, relative to Canada, the, the number of peacekeepers that Ireland has um, uh, compared to Canada. So I think that we have not seen... Uh, uh, again, the development of a, of a coherent foreign policy. I'm not sure why Canada deserves this. Being better than the U.S. is, is not good enough. Um, and, I, and I think that, that that message was sent. Whether or not this government receives it, I think, is, is another question. Um, but it plays into, you know, most Canadians, I think, don't uh, vote uh, based on foreign policy. And that's partly why we, we don't get... Um, well-developed foreign policy, at least not in the last couple decades. Um, but it plays into a broader narrative that I think is even connected to what we were just talking about, about sort of the, the all-talk, no-action uh, from this government, from Trudeau's government, and, and sort of talking a good game, but then not really um, doing the work around policy, around government investments uh, to, to action it. Sarah McIntyre. <laughs> Well, look, it's a failed organization that has a bunch of rogue states making decisions on human rights. And I I don't know why we would waste a single taxpayer dollar trying to lobby to get on a U.N. Security Sea Council or the U.N. Security uh, Council seat. It's, you know, we have far more pressing issues here at home. And I don't take any lecturing or hectoring or lecturing from, from the U.N. that has uh, human rights bodies with some of the most human rights abusers uh, the world has ever seen. So I think, yeah, okay, we lost it. Can we now focus on the economy here and what people need every day to uh, get their lives back in order and, and just, uh, you know, continue to, well, um, you know, have the uh, grandstanding uh, once a year at the U.N. General Assembly? And let's get on with things. Okay, but Stephen Harper tried to get a, a seat on the U.N. Security Council. <laughs> yeah, I, you're, you're his former press yeah, secretary. I, so. Well, I, you know, I, you don't agree with everything that your leader does. <laughs> okay. Just because he had that position doesn't mean it's the one that I just before we move on from Canada's failed bid for a seat on the UN Security Council, just looking at the results here, I mean, Canada worked for years to try and get this thing. Uh, we got beat out by Norway. Norway got 130 votes. The Republic of Ireland got 128 votes. Canada received just 108 votes, which is even worse than the last time we tried this in 2010 under the former Stephen Harper government. We got 114 votes back in 2010. Uh, Sarah, let me just make sure I'm clear on this. Now, in 2010, when the Stephen Harper government was making a bid for UN Security Council seat, were, were you Harper's press secretary at that time? Yeah, I was working from 2009 to 2012. Okay. So, but, mm -hmm. you, were, but you were against this bid for a UN Security Council seat. Look, I, I mean, it was a policy position that was taken and, you know, you follow through on, on what, uh, what your government, your party's um, priorities are. Was it my priority? No, but it doesn't mean that, look, I, it doesn't mean that it wasn't a, a laudable or noble goal. It's just something that I think uh, in terms for Canadians uh, and our use of our tax dollars and foreign policy, yeah. you know, it's there's other priorities. Like right now, we should be focusing on the five eyes, right? In terms of security, we should be looking at what are the five eyes doing with respect to China? What are we doing with respect to the WHO and transparency? How are we going to recover into a global training economy again? And, and not about the UN Security Council. Okay, a few minutes on the uh, federal conservative leadership race. There was actually a debate last night, a uh, French language debate. Uh, Maria, your thoughts on the federal conservative leadership race? 
um, well, I don't speak French, but uh, neither do most of them. Um, I mean, I, it was, uh, it's been a bit of a, a snooze fest. I think that it's for the, for a national party uh, in contention for government in every election um, to not have any uh, candidates that are strong in French. Uh, really does say something. It's hard to form government in this country without a strong relationship with Quebec for, for obvious reasons, as well as the electoral math. Um, so I think that's telling. I mean, Peter McKay is the front runner, has certainly had a lot of time over the last several years uh, to work on his French. The, the, he, he clearly has in the last several weeks. Um, but I don't know that that's going to be enough uh, to make a difference in Quebec. So, I mean, I think overall, the my, my sort of takeaway from the Conservative leadership race is, is that it's quite underwhelming. Sarah McIntyre, your thoughts? <laughs> well, Maria and I are going to agree on a lot more than you thought we were going to. <laughs> and, and like many of the candidates, I don't speak French, so I didn't watch the debate last night. Um, look, it's uh, a global pandemic and a leadership for a party is, is it's, you know, the most difficult uh, times to get people engaged and excited, um, you know, in terms of uh, who's thrown their hat in and, um, you know, what the major issues are. Look, we're having Parliament sit like one day a week and, uh, you know, we're not really hearing enough on some of the big, uh, big issues that are in front of uh, our elected officials from the leaders themselves. Um, you know, Aaron O'Toole did put out a pretty comprehensive um, platform. Yeah. Uh, but, I, you know, it's, it, it is pretty underwhelming. And it's, I think, you know, it's not uh, for a party that really got, you know, six million votes in the last election not long ago and that we're in a minority government and we should be the natural next uh, party to be voted in. It's, uh, it is pretty, pretty underwhelming. What do, you th- what do you think about Leslyn Lewis, who kind of an outside candidate here for, mm-hmm. for this job? Uh, I had her on as a guest yesterday on the show, the only woman in the race, the only visible minority in the, in this context. I think she's kind of an intriguing uh, candidate and getting more attention these days. Do you have any thoughts on yeah. her, Sarah? Yeah, you know, and she's, I, I know a few people that are working for her, and I think she's, uh, you know, going to be definitely gaining some profile within the party, um, regardless of how she, uh, how uh, the vote turns out. And, and I think she's going to do much better than what a lot of people think she will. Um, it, just because she's uh, she's going to be the second choice for a lot of different uh, candidates, and it's a preferential ballot. So she's performed well. I mean, I think she's um, you know, she represents a different side, you know, a different the social conservative side of the of the of the house uh, of the party. Um, she's got some interest. She's got a really interesting background. Um, she spoke. She's uh, well spoken. I'm excited to actually watch her tonight in the English language debates. Um, but you know, by all accounts, for someone that we had, I have I have never met her. Um, she's done remarkably well, and she's had a good team, and she's done a lot of membership sales. So, you know, um, that's that's good news for the party. Right. I think she's coming on for sure. I don't think she can win, but she is certainly um, starting yeah. to make an impact on this race. Guys, we're out of time, but thank you both for being here. Thank you. Thank you. That is Sarah McIntyre. She's a columnist and commentator. She's uh, Stephen Harper's former press secretary. Maria Dobrinskaya is the BC director of the Broadbent Institute. Let's go south of the border now to the United States and talk about politics in America. Our American political panel is assembled, and there is so much going on, including uh, this new book by John Bolton, uh, Trump's former security uh, advisor. Uh, is rocking Washington, uh, the White House trying to stop publication of this book. I think it could be too late for that. Also, President Donald Trump moving ahead with that rally in Tulsa, Oklahoma, uh, despite some rising COVID cases there. Our panel is assembled. Brian Kennedy is here. He's a former Washington correspondent uh, in the White House, now the president of Can-Am Consulting in San Diego. Brian, welcome back. Nice to be back, Mike. Brian, thanks for doing this. Also on the line is Chris Salcedo. He is the host of the Chris Salcedo Show in Dallas, Texas. I'm very pleased to welcome him back. Hey, Chris. Hey, Mike. Hey, guys. Thanks to both of you for being here. Let's start first with uh, Bolton's uh, book, which is Rocking Washington, Donald Trump's former national security advisor, leveling some pretty stunning accusations against his former book or his former boss in this book, including that Trump asked China to help him win uh, the 2020 U.S. presidential election, among many other things. Uh, the uh, White House trying to stop publication of this book. I think it could be too late for that. looks like it's already been printed and ready to go. Here is Donald Trump uh, talking to Fox News. 
He broke the law. I, he was a washed-up guy. I gave him a chance. Uh, he couldn't get Senate-confirmed, so I gave him a non-Senate-confirmed position where I could just put him there, see how he worked. And uh, I wasn't very enamored. Oh, okay, Chris, let me go to you first. What are your thoughts on this book? Well, some of the accusations that have been leveled by Mr. Bolton have already been refuted by other people, uh, Ambassador Lighthizer in, in particular, uh, by, by those who were actually present in the room. Uh, Mr. Bolton could have made these accusations in front of various committees and on the record under oath, but chose instead to make these accusations on a book you got to buy, you know, 25 bucks a pop. So uh, a lot of people who have been supporters, myself included, of John Bolton in the past are scratching their heads wondering what, what's, what's the motivation here. Uh, and I'm not exactly sure. If, if Donald Trump was a clear and present danger, to the United States of America, why didn't Mr. Bolton avail himself of all of the opportunities to say so under oath in front of the United States Congress and in other venues, or maybe even going on to a to uh, conduct an interview with uh, with skeptical media? Uh, he neglected not to do that, and instead say, "Buy my book." And uh, a, a lot of people don't seem to have a, uh, a lot of confidence in what he's printing in those pages. Okay, I think he's going to sell a lot of books, though. Brian Kennedy, what do you think? Well, first of all, let's get the record straight. Uh, he didn't appear before the, the House committee because he wanted a court to decide whether or not he should be allowed to appear. But then he offered to appear before the U.S. Senate under oath. And the Senate said, no, thank you. Uh, this is during the impeachment hearings. We don't want any witnesses. So let's clear that up right off the bat. Now, John Bolton is, is a, you know, a conservative lightning rod, eh? But he's well-liked within the conservative, uh, you know, fear. And uh, I think he's probably still liked by many, even though he's picking on Donald Trump. The part that gets me about the book itself is Trump. Bolton claims that Trump tried to get uh, President Xi of China to help him win the 2020 election. That was the first thing that struck me in this book. The second and third thing was, first of all, Bolton says that uh, Trump didn't even know where Finland was. He thought it was part of Russia. What does that tell you about his education? And then secondly, the other part that Bolton says, he had to ask the prime minister if they had nukes. And I'm going... The, pri well, the prime minister of the United Kingdom. Uh, uh, yeah, the United Kingdom. Yeah. And, you know, I, she must have just dropped her jaw when she heard that. But, you know, but those are some of the things that are, that are interesting in this book. The reason Trump doesn't want, I think, the book out, he doesn't want people reading it from page one till the end of the book because there's probably a whole lot more stuff in there that's going to really outline how he has run his presidency. And Trump, I don't think, wants his base reading the book. And I'm sure he doesn't want other people reading the book because they might come away with a different opinion of just how he runs the country. Okay, Chris, what do you, what do you say to those accusations that Bolton has leveled in this book? I mean, this guy used to be a bit of a, a poster boy for the conser conservative forces in America. I mean, are, are the conservatives now just going to look at him and say, what, you're lying? You're making it all up? What? <laughs> yeah, I, I find it ironic. The very same people who are saying that uh, John Bolton was a man that was not to be trusted, that a man was a right-wing extremist, are now claiming that everything he says in his book is 100% accurate and true. I think it's fair to say that those who are saying that, oh, Bolton says this about the president, and Bolton says this about the president, and man alive, I mean, that, that, is, that is fantastic, and uh, this is what we've believed about Trump all along. Uh, these are the very same people who said that, that John Bolton isn't a credible source for anything when he was critical of Barack Obama, for example. Yeah. Uh, these these individuals out there who are hell-bent on believing the worst about Donald Trump, they're going to believe anything that is negative about the president. Of course, they will disbelieve anything that is said that is positive about the president. So I just take their protestations or their support of, of Mr. Bolton at this point with a great assault. Okay, did Brian Kennedy, does this book hurt Trump? I mean, it's interesting that you see the White House trying to stop the publication of the book. Is that even possible? I, I've heard it's already at the Amazon warehouse and ready to ship out next week. It, yeah, it's, it's already number one on the Amazon uh, book yeah. list. So yeah. they're, they're going to be shipping out a lot of books. Now, whether or not the court will intervene here under national security guidelines, I doubt it. I, I think they're going to say, well, you know, the book's going forward, and that's that. Now, most legal experts would say the same, but there are some that say it may go Trump's way. Look, the White House doesn't interfere to try to prevent this book from going out, unless 
they don't want the book in front of the public. And that's the problem. We can get all of the excerpts, and we can all talk about the excerpts, but once the book is out there and the public is reading it, yeah. I think that is what the White House is afraid of. And, you know, and my, my good friend Chris there, sure, a lot of people are agreeing with John Bolton, but there still are a lot of conservatives that believe in John Bolton, and they'll be reading his book one way or another, and okay. they may change their mind. Okay, I think Trump. the... The cat's out of the bag with this thing. I'm not sure it, it, it can be stopped at this point. Let's, let's have a little listen to John Bolton himself. Here he is talking about the president. I don't think he's fit for office. I, I don't think he has the competence to carry out the job. There really isn't any guiding principle uh, that I was able to discern other than uh, what's good for Donald Trump's reelection. Chris, this has got to be damaging to Trump. Your thoughts? Uh, again, it just depends on how much credibility you, you place yeah. in Mr. Bolton. Again, I, uh, I, I want to point out that he had an opportunity. I know that he, he claims he wanted to wait for a court ruling as to whether he could testify, but he wasn't prohibited from testifying in front of Congress during the impeachment hearing. He just wanted some sort of backup. He wanted some sort of excuse to do so. He didn't need it. If he really believed the president of the United States was a threat to the United States, and he should have taken an opportunity to testify before Congress. Of course, uh, the individuals who were in that skiff on the House side, and of course it was the House's job to provide and make a case that, uh, that the president needed to be impeached. It wasn't the Senate's job to call witnesses. Uh, they're there to be the, the, the judges. They're there to be the jury and to see whether or not the House could prove its case. And the okay. House didn't do that. The time to the call Mr. Bolton was by Mr. Schiff in a in a secured skiff down in the in the basement of the Capitol, and he was not called. And he didn't actually he didn't want to testify, and he should okay. have if he believed the President of the United States was actually a threat to this country. Okay, let guys, just, yeah, Brian, go ahead, real quick, Mike, yeah. very quickly here. But let's be clear: the White House has never left left a senior official that worked in the White House appear before any committee, and that means if they were still working or they were left the White House. The White House prevented them from ever appearing before a committee. And I can guarantee you right now, as sure as I'm talking to you, if John Bolton said he was going to appear before that committee in the House, the White House would have intervened under national security and tried to prevent him. And they would have gone to court to prevent him from testifying. Okay, well, they look. probably would have said executive privilege, but again... Uh, we will never know because Mr. Bolton said that he was going to wait for a court ruling. And again, if you really have the safety and security of the country at heart, then you don't wait. Uh, okay. You don't say, well, twenty four ninety five. Uh, that's how much the security of the country is worth. Go buy my book. Guys, let's talk about President Donald Trump's big rally in Tulsa, Oklahoma, scheduled for this Saturday night. Up to 19,000 people expected at this indoor rally. Very controversial. Have a listen to this report first from uh, CBS. Despite the recent spike in coronavirus cases, President Trump says he won't be shamed into canceling his campaign rallies and is still planning to pack an arena in Tulsa, Oklahoma on Saturday. He claims one million people have requested tickets. It's an amazing nobody's ever heard of numbers like this. I think we're going to have a... We're going to have a great time. But with infections on the rise in Tulsa, the head of the city's health department calls the rally dangerous and wants the president to postpone it. If you really want to stay safe, I, I, we recommend not to go and put yourself in an enclosed space. <clears throat> okay, Chris, what do you think about this rally? I mean, if you were in Tulsa on Saturday, would you go to this rally? Sure. Absolutely, I would. Absolutely. You, you know, I, I find it rather funny uh, and, you know, the, the, the folks that are in the basket of bias press, as I call it, uh, these are the folks who have sat by and watched thousands of individuals riot and rampage through our streets. Uh, some of them are actually legitimately protesting as well by the thousands. No social distancing, no masks. Uh, just to the south of you, you've got an occupied zone in America where they're not practicing any of this social distancing uh, stuff in the uh, in, in Seattle. Yeah. And. The, the press is not worried one iota about, about the resurgence of the China virus. However, Donald Trump says, hey, I'm going to get together with, you know, 20 to, uh, 22,000 individuals or even more at a rally. Oh, then all of a sudden, we're start, we, uh, the, the China virus is back in force. It seems to be rather contrived, rather selective on the press's part. And I, like I said, I laugh most of the time because this is really what they fear. 
the president of the United States, making a connection with with his voters, bypassing their filter. And uh, it just seems to me that these stories are out there out of an abundance of fear over the president connecting with the American people. Okay, Brian Kennedy, what do you say to that? Well, first of all, I'll just call it the coronavirus. You know, he can call it China. He's just parroting Trump on the virus. But let's be clear about this, Mike. Yeah, there was a lot of talk about the protesters all across the country, but they were outdoors and most were wearing masks. And all the medical professionals will say... That's just not that's true. The, that, well, that's what you say. But, and so many of the medical professionals said, well, they were outside. Now, there was no social distancing. And I agree, this probably could be a problem with the virus. The situation here in Tulsa, even the Republican mayor of the city has told people, if you're afraid of the virus, do not come. And, you know, I listened to Chris here, and he would go, well, sure. If Donald Trump is so sure that nothing's going to happen, then why is he making everybody sign a waiver that you can't sue Trump if you get the virus? And remember, these aren't people outdoors. These are people in a packed arena. It's a big difference from being outdoors. The medical professionals will tell you this. I'm sure Chris knows this. And being inside, you know, a 20,000-seat uh, arena, plus the thousands more that are probably likely going to show up uh, and be outside. I don't know where they're going to we're going to put them. But, and they're coming from all over the states. They're not just coming from Tulsa. So you don't know. If some people have that virus and they go home, back to their home states, and something happens, what, what are you going to say? I mean, is this – you don't see Major League Baseball. You don't see the NFL. You don't see the NBA. You don't even see the National Hockey League. Say, let's pack the arenas, uh, you know, for our games right now. Yeah. You only see Donald Trump because all Trump does, he signs executive orders. He watches the news on TV every day, plays a lot of golf down at his resorts, and wants to hold rallies. And now he can hold yeah. his rally. I just Chris. think the timing is a little off for this. Chris, go ahead. Yeah. Yeah, first off, uh, look, the, the, the swipe, because uh, of my calling it the China virus, it's, it's where it originated. I know there are a lot of folks out there who defend communists as a matter, of course, in particular communists who have uh, unleashed a plague on this world. Xi Jinping, the dictator for life over in China, has not clearly explained why he knew he had person-to-person transmission of this virus. By the way, Michael McCall in the uh, United States House of Representatives just re- released a report detailing the culpability of the communist Chinese and what they have done, not only to the United States, but also to the world. I'm not in the mood to defend communi- uh, communist China's culpability and what they've unleashed on this because of their lies. There are well, some people Trump, in America wanted, who want to blame this all on Donald Trump. There yeah. are some people in America who know who is responsible for this pandemic. And it is the lies of a communist government, a repressive regime, responsible for the death of millions throughout human history. So let's get that on the record straight and right now. The president could have avoided a lot of this, by the way, could have avoided a lot of this if he had just held one of these rallies in a stadium. But I bet you these same voices who are decrying this would have a problem having it in an outdoor arena, having it in an outdoor stadium. The problem is the rallies themselves the health concerns, as we saw evidenced by the riots and by the looting and by the, the rampaging through America's streets, are secondary. Okay, we just got a minute left, Brian, if you want to quickly respond to that. Yeah, I'll quickly respond. He's calling this communist China. Let's be clear. Back in January, Trump said President Xi was doing a great job handling the virus, doing everything the right way. This is in January. This now, we find out in Bolton's book, is Trump's asking Xi to help him out in the 2020 election. If I listen to Chris, this guy is a communist, uh, you know, crazed man. And so why is Trump so friendly with she then if he's so crazed? And he also invited him, if I remember right, to Mar-a-Lago. Or Mar-a-Lago, I should say. So Trump has a, okay. a long history dealing with, with China. And we should also wonder how many family members have benefited by that relationship between Trump okay. and she. Gentlemen, we're out of time. And a long history of standing up to China as well, which no other former occupier of the Oval Office, including Mr. Obama, dared to do. Thank you, guys. We're out of time. We could fill a whole show with you guys. I appreciate your time today. Brian Kennedy and Chris Salcedo, they are our American political panel. They'll be back for sure. 
Let's talk now about the corporate behemoth known as Amazon and the man who runs it, Jeff Bezos. He is the richest man in the world, and he gets richer by the minute. Even before the COVID-19 pandemic, Amazon was already dominant. But ever since the pandemic hit, lots of people shopping online, and that is all enriching Jeff Bezos. Check this out. Amazon took in $33 million an hour in the first three months of this year jeff bezos added 13 billion dollars to his fortune in just one month he could become the planet's first trillionaire now let's talk about the power of amazon and whether it is a force for good or bad in the world and my guest is stacy mitchell she is one of america's most prominent critics of amazon she's written extensively about the dangers of large corporate monopolies and testified before con- congress and i'm very pleased to welcome her to the show stacy thanks a lot for coming on yeah, it's great to be with you. Thanks. Yeah, I appreciate it a lot. Let's uh, first of all, t- t- can you explain to me uh, what Amazon's business model is right now? Like, I remember when B- Amazon started up. I remember that was the place you'd go to buy a book online, and I remember buying books from Amazon. And I remember back then they seemed to be losing a lot of money, and then they suddenly just seemed to explode into this uh, huge, uh, profitable enterprise. W- what is this their status right now? Yeah, you know, Amazon all along has really been intent on becoming an infrastructure company. You know, Amazon provides the infrastructure through which a growing share of our commerce is done. And that includes their online platform, which now attracts a majority of product search and customer traffic. Um, AWS, which powers much of the web. Many, uh, many companies like Netflix, Slack rely on AWS. Um, it includes their growing logistics and shipping infrastructure, which now rivals uh, the U.S. Postal Service and the number of packages right. they deliver. Um, it includes voice. You know, Alexa is the dominant voice platform that is increasingly the way that we access the Internet. Um, you know, Amazon's goal is to be the underlying infrastructure of the economy and then to use that position and the power that it gives it over other companies to really extract and consolidate a lot of wealth and to also privilege its own interests. Yeah, it's amazing how this company has grown. Like, I remember in the early days when they were just selling books, weren't they losing a lot of money when they first started up? Yes. I mean, their first uh, six years in business, they lost about $3 billion wow. selling books at a loss. And in fact, this is, uh, has been a strategy of Amazon's all along. They will go into a, a new market area and they will sell at a loss until they cripple the competition in that sector and then they own the market. So in the case of, of books, they successfully got, you know, uh, caused uh, countless uh, bookstores to close, shrinking in the publishing market. Uh, and today they uh, capture more than half of all book sales in the U.S. And increasingly, they are a major publisher of books as well. Yeah. And then, of course, they sell just about everything else when you want to go online. And I'm sure lots of people listening right now have uh, bought stuff on Amazon. I've shopped on Amazon. I mean, how can, how can you not in a lot of ways? Because if, if you're looking to buy something online, it's almost sort of like the first place that you check out. And do you think for, for companies that use Amazon to sell their products... Uh, do they have what's what's their relationship like with Amazon? I mean, you sort of have to play ball with them, don't you, to sort of sell online these days? Yeah, you know, even just five or six years ago, when people wanted to buy something online, they would typically go to like Google or a search engine and they would type in, you know, I want to get running shoes or I want to get a certain kind of toy or whatever. Right. And they would get a lot of different results. It would include Amazon, of course, but it would include other companies. And because of the growth in membership in Prime, you know, Amazon Prime, uh, what has started to happen is that most people now default to just starting right at Amazon. So they don't start right. at a search engine. They start right at Amazon and do their product search there. And what that has meant is that lots of companies, you know, everything from you know, independent retailers to product makers, that you know, used to run their own successful e-commerce sites and used to be able to get a share of that traffic – that traffic is now dried up and they have faced this really difficult decision of, you know, either give give up access to the online market or become a seller on Amazon's platform. And once they become a seller on Amazon's platform, they're basically giving their most ferocious competitor an incredible look into their business, 
ownership of their customers um, and, and really an ability to manipulate and control what they do. Um, you know, it's very difficult to succeed in that environment. Uh, we, we, you know, seen through the reporting that Amazon, you know, consistently has taken advantage of sellers. So, for example, the Wall Street Journal recently did a big expose where they found that Amazon was uh, looking at the proprietary information of businesses on its platform and using that to design knockoff versions of their products, and then it would give its own versions, you know, prominent wow. placement in the search results. You know, every year, what you have to pay in fees to Amazon in order to be successful on the platform continue to grow and grow and grow. So Amazon is keeping a larger and larger share of these businesses' right. income. And of course, you know, the rules can change. Amazon sets the rules. They decide whether you have a fair opportunity to compete. They're the ones picking winners and losers these days. It's not customers right. that are picking winners and losers. And whether you are exposed to a particular product or not depends on where Amazon puts them in the search result. My view is that that's just an extraordinary amount of power to give one company, right. um, and that it's fundamentally at odds with an open society, an open market, and we need to address that politically. Okay, the United States has antitrust laws, right? So, I mean, is is Amazon doing anything that is illegal or contrary to antitrust laws, and how do you think it should be reformed? Yeah, it's a great question. So, yeah, we have very strong uh, antitrust laws. Um, yeah. However, they were weakened in terms of their enforcement about 40 years ago. There was a sort of a uh, school of economic and legal thought that came to dominate um, how policymakers and enforcers and the courts view competition issues. And effectively, the laws are still there, but there's been a real change in how those laws are interpreted and enforced. And so many of the things that Amazon has done over the years to attain this level of dominance, you know, including selling below cost with a predatory intent, uh, including using its position in, in, in dominance in one market to gain dominance in another, um, you know, a number of things that they've, they've engaged in that have really allowed them to kind of own the web would have been illegal uh, had they started up, you know, a generation earlier than they did. Yeah. Um, but that said, the laws are still very strong, and there is now a growing movement within the U.S. to reform those interpretations and a growing effort within Congress to bring some scrutiny to big tech. So, um, you know, we have the laws. I think that they could be used more effectively, and I think there's also a growing sort of push to, uh, to, to look at whether we need additional rules, additional legislation to address this kind of what's become known as platform power. You know, when mm. you control the infrastructure and you also compete on that infrastructure, there's a conflict of interest. And I guess I will just say one last thing on that. It's, it's yeah. worth knowing that while, you know, in some respects, Amazon seems like this kind of new you know, form of business um, and a new kind of challenge to competition issues, in many respects, it's very similar to the things we encountered 100, 125 years ago. And in particular, the railroads, you know, when the railroads came along, you know, a handful of industrialists gained control of those rail lines, people like John D. Rockefeller, who used his control over the rails to privilege his own oil, standard oil, um, and to block his competitors from having access to the market. And, you know, the railroads also extorted a lot of money from farmers and small business people who had to move their goods on the rails. This is exactly what we see Amazon doing today. And indeed, back in 1906, in response to the railroads, we actually passed a law that says, if you own a railroad, you can't have an interest in any other type of industry because there's just an inherent conflict. If you're the infrastructure, you have to be a neutral party. Uh, in, in my view, that's what we need to do with Amazon. That's a very interesting parallel. Let me ask you one final question here. We're in the midst, in the grip of this COVID-19 pandemic. It almost seems like uh, the pandemic has been good for business for Amazon. And I'm just wondering if you have any thoughts on the future, because, you know, as we see, as we see the economic uh, damage that's being caused by this pandemic. We may see a lot of small businesses shut down and go bankrupt. Does Amazon kind of swoop in there and, and get even more powerful because of this pandemic, do you think? They are certainly looking to do that. Um, they have made every move in that direction. They've really tried to take advantage of this moment to cement their position. Um, I think at the same time, there is something about this moment that has really exposed some of the dangers of their power 
And I think people are aware of just the, you know, the real threat. We could see just, an, you know, a, a, an incredible die-off, an extinction-level event of small businesses. And I think people are beginning to really realize what's at stake in a heavily consolidated economy. You know, I, I, you know, it, it, for, for, for our own sort of self-interest, um, one of the problems when you have this kind of centralization of power and you kill off all of these small businesses is that we lose pathways to the middle class. Um, you know, we end up becoming an increasingly unequal society where there are very, there are fewer and fewer opportunities to earn a living. There are fewer opportunities to like control your own future, your own livelihood. Um, and I think that that's quite, quite damaging. I will also say that, you know, even just as consumers, you know, Amazon for many years has kind of tried to justify its exploitation of suppliers, of small firms, other retailers, on the grounds that it was benefiting consumers. You know, but during the pandemic, we've actually seen them exercise their desire to monopolize the market in ways that have really worked against consumers. You know, they delayed shipments of many goods um, and held those goods in their warehouses, didn't allow third-party sellers to get them out, even when those third-party sellers could could have done okay. you know, two-day delivery um, of those non-essential goods through other carriers. But Amazon's desire to become this dominant um, logistics and package delivery service. Uh, they just they did something that wasn't right. in the interest of either the sellers or the consumers in that moment. And so I say that just because I think over time, you know, monopolies are dangerous in mm. all ways. They're dangerous to us as people who need to earn a living. They're dangerous to us as people who want to live in a society where big corporations don't dominate our government, um, want to have a democracy, and, and ultimately they're even dangerous to us as consumers. Okay. Stacey, it's been great to have you on the show. Thank you for coming on with your thoughts. Appreciate it. Thank you. Take care. Thank you. Stacy Mitchell, she is the co-director at the Institute for Local Self-Reliance, probably one of America's uh, most prominent critics of Amazon.